This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. Here we go. The big beast, pressure canning. I know, it can seem scary to have a giant pot on your stove that you think could explode at any moment, and that fear probably stems from pictures that you've seen of pressure canners doing just that. Lids embedded into ceilings and exploded contents all over the walls. I'm here to tell you, pressure canning is perfectly safe if you follow the instructions. And modern pressure canners have all kinds of safety features designed to keep you from destroying your kitchen, even if you do screw something up. I've been pressure canning for about a decade, and I've never had an incident in my kitchen. Ever. Even when I was first starting out and I didn't have a clue what I was doing and was just reading the instructions from a book. There are a lot of reasons that you may want to pressure can, not the least of which is the much wider variety of things you can preserve over water bath canning. You don't need to worry about acidifying foods before preserving them, and you can actually can whole meals in a jar for emergencies if you're so inclined. My favorite thing to pressure can? Green beans, plain and simple. But this year, I'm going deeper into dried beans and meats and all kinds of stuff to hedge my bets against winter power outages in our rural area, and I am super excited to try new things. So before you decide that pressure canning isn't a viable option for you, or if you've just been too scared to try it because it just seems dangerous, hang out with me today while we go over the basics of pressure canning. Do's and don'ts, the must-haves and nice-to-haves, and all the resources you could ever need to do it safely and effectively. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. Okay, first things first, we are going to tackle the question of the week because I have had two questions in particular that have come from multiple directions this week um, at the farm stand, uh, here locally, and online, and in my email. I mean, it's, some of you are panicking, so we're going to talk about uh, first garlic and then a, a little bit about the fall garden. So first things first, garlic, right? Now is the time to be grabbing your seed garlic, your garlic for planting, um, I will link to episodes 40 and 67. Those are both garlic episodes. Um, episode 40 talks about garlic from start to finish like I normally do with specific crops. And then 67 talks specifically about um, when and how to plant your garlic. And I will link to both of those in the show notes. So rather than deep dive back into this, for now, really what you need to know when searching for seed garlic is hardneck versus soft neck. So depending on where you garden is going to depend on which one is better for your climate. Hardneck garlic are more suited for your colder climates, basically anything up through zone six. 
And then the soft neck are better for warmer climates, basically anything seven, uh, zone seven and up. Zones four through eight can actually plant both of them with some success. Now I cover my bases here with both. Um, we are in zone six A and we oftentimes will have really, really brutal winters. And sometimes we have unusually warm winters. And so, you know, if I have a really brutal cold, then it may kill off all my soft neck garlic, but I may have a beautiful harvest of the hard neck. If I have an unusually warm winter, then it means I have really big, beautiful soft neck garlic, but I'll have much smaller bulbs in the hard neck. So I opt to do both. No matter which one you choose, make sure that you are looking for seed garlic, okay? So seed garlic has been tested to be disease-free. If you can find some locally, that is your best bet, especially if it has been grown locally. Um, but ordering from catalogs or online is fine if you trust the source. In other words, make sure that you are buying from a recognized seed company and you're not just getting some random Amazon store that might be shipping it in. Um, and then use store-bought as an absolute last resort. And the reason for this is most of the stuff that you see in the store has been treated in some way to keep it from sprouting so it can store longer at that kind of fluctuating level of temperatures that happens when you're shipping things around. And they also haven't been tested as to whether or not they carry any diseases because they're obviously meant for consumption. Um, and so they're not going to check for plant diseases. So you have no idea if you put that into your garden, if it's going to harbor some diseases that might rear its ugly head later on down the road. So if you if you do have to use store-bought garlic and there is a concern about the possibility of maybe diseases or something, do them at least in like a raised planter or in containers of some sort. So if something does happen, you can actually swap that soil out. But it, right now, hopefully you can still find some sources that have seed garlic in stock and you'll be able just to order it. But get it quickly. It, it does tend to sell out. And then you want to plant after you have your first hard freeze. So if you are in zones four or colder, you need to get a move on and make sure that you have your seed garlic ready. Garlic will form its roots when it's cold. And so if you plant too early, it basically means that they're going to sit there not being able to take up any nutrients or any water. And then if it gets really wet, then they might actually rot while they're sitting there waiting for the cold weather and waiting to be able to root. Of course, planting too late may also mean that you are trying to plant into, you know, rock hard ground because it's frozen. So keep that in mind when you're planning on when to plant. Um, and then for you warm climate folks, you may need to artificially chill your seed garlic to really get it going. Again, episode 67 has all the details on growing garlic in a warmer climate, um, but it also have, has everything that you need to know about the timing of the planting of your garlic in case you uh, need a refresher course right now. But now is the time to, to get on it and, and start getting your seed garlic purchased. Now, the second question I've been getting a lot, and this is mostly here locally, is why is my garden dying suddenly? <laughs> um, I've had a lot of people panicking, like, oh my gosh, what went wrong? What's happening? Look, in, if you are in zone eight 
or cooler, um, it, we're coming to the end of our warmer season. So if you've had warm season crops in the ground for a while, the plants are sort of pushing their, uh, their energy into those last bits of reproduction. So the foliage is going to start to look awful. Many of those plants have been in the ground for a very long time by now. And so unless you're constantly pruning and feeding them, they're going to be looking like they've given it their all because they have. It also might be that pests and diseases have finally taken their toll on those earlier planted specimens. Again, totally normal. Some things that you can do to help combat that in the future is to plan some succession plantings. So especially here where we are in the Midwest, growing zucchini and yellow squash throughout the summertime can be an issue. Um, the first couple of years that we did it out here on, on the big farm, I had yellow squash plants that were no joke, chest high. They were huge. I planted them once, harvested off of them all season, did the same thing with the zucchini, didn't have to worry about it. The next year, we weren't as lucky. We actually lost that first batch fairly early on, ended up having to do a, section, a second planting. Um, now we routinely have to do three plantings because the pest pressure has gotten so bad. So we plan for those succession plantings, knowing that we can continue planting and getting some bit of a harvest while the, the new plants start to come on, and that will take us all the way through the first frost. The same thing can be done with cucumbers. Cucumbers especially um, are prone to just sort of giving all that they've got and then dying out halfway through the season. So if you do a succession planting, that will help with that. These are all things that you want to plan for for next season. Another thing that can help is planting a little bit later. So one of the things that I did this year was I delayed the planting of my sauce tomatoes um, until later on, end of June, beginning of July, knowing that they wouldn't start producing until now. And that's what they're doing. They're finally loaded with fruit and they're all getting ready to start ripening up because I wanted them later. I didn't want them early on in the season for my canning. I wanted them now. So timing your planting. Just because all of the guides say, well, in your zone... You know, you can plant tomatoes in, in May, you should, you should get them in the ground then, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. You can spread out how you plant your garden according to what your schedule is or according to what you want to do. So, you know, if, if you have taken notes in the past and realized that your tomato plants have started to peter out right around the beginning of September or you didn't get enough zucchini the last time or whatever, take that into consideration when you're planning for your garden the next season. You can do those succession plantings or those late plantings or staggered plantings, whatever works for you in your garden to be able to continue getting stuff all the way through into um, the late fall without the garden like all of a sudden coming to a screeching halt. And keep in mind that the fall garden can be a great sort of refresh to both the garden and the gardener. It's nice to see some, some new things popping up in the garden while the other stuff is sort of starting to die off. And even those of you in colder climates can still plant something that's quick maturing, like radishes or those hawkeye salad turnips, um, baby spinach, loose leaf lettuces. Those all have very short maturation periods, and so you can get those in the ground and be able to get something out of your garden still. Zone 9 and warmer, you can likely start putting in things like carrots and radishes and bok choy and Swiss chard, even celery. Because, like, now is the time that you can take advantage of the sort of waning heat a little bit with some crops that can stand the heat at the beginning of their life cycle and then continue pushing through those shorter days and manage to get some winter harvests of, of all of these things. So 
It's all normal that at this time of the year, your garden might look like it's suffering and dying off. But it can also be super frustrating if the reason that you're losing plants is from like pests and disease. My running friend, Chris, who is also an avid gardener, shared with me on Sunday while we were at a race that she managed to get like one tiny acorn squash from her plant and now it is succumbing to the squash vine borer. That is super frustrating. And all we can do in that instance really is take notes about the timing of when we planted and when the pests started, and then remember or write down what we did for prevention, what worked and what didn't, and then add that into the plan for next season. Let's talk pressure canning. Why do we even need to worry about pressure canning? Like I mentioned in last week's episode on water bath canning, Pressure canning is necessary for low acid foods that can't be acidified. So this includes things like green beans, sweet corn, really most veggies other than tomatoes, any meats if you plan on doing that, and anything with a pH higher than 4.6. It is the only safe method of canning low acid foods. So how does pressure canning work? On your pressure canner, when you lock that canner lid closed, and you trap the steam from the boiling water, the steam gets pressurized within the canner. So this pressurized steam creates a temperature of above 240 degrees Fahrenheit, and that destroys the bacterial spores that are naturally present in our foods. Remember last week I mentioned there are certain bacteria that aren't killed at boiling point. It needs to be hotter than that, which is why we can't use a boiling water bath canner. These spores by themselves aren't harmful. We actually eat them all the time on fresh food because they're actually present in our soil. But under certain conditions, these spores can grow. And these conditions are things like low oxygen or anaerobic, no oxygen environments, any environment that is low acid, low sugar, or low salt, certain temperature ranges, and certain amounts of water. Well, as these spores reproduce, they give off toxins, and those toxins are very toxic to us, and they can cause botulism. So this is why boiling water bath canning is only safe for foods that don't present these conditions. The bacteria that, pro that produce the botulinum toxin can't survive in the highly acidic or sugary environments. That's why jams and jellies are okay in a bath, uh, a bath canner. They're full of sugars. You know, that's why we use vinegar when we water bath can our salsas or our pickles. It's acidifying the food enough to kill those bacteria. But some foods are just too high in pH to be able to be safely canned in boiling water, even if we add acid or sugar. So in pressure canning, once the canner has reached the specific pressure setting, the instructions tell you how long to hold it at that pressure. This is holding the food in the jars at that proper temperature for the amount of time that it takes to kill off any of those bad bacteria. And then as the jars begin to cool after they've been pressurized, it forms a vacuum. And so that seals in the food and seals out any new bacteria from getting in and spoiling what we just preserved. So let's clear up a few things about the dangers of pressure canning really quick. Pressure canners for use in the home were extensively redesigned 
beginning in the 1970s. So the ones that you've likely seen pictures of exploding in people's kitchens were either probably made before the 1970s or were absolutely used incorrectly. <laughs> the ones that were made before the 70s were very heavy walled kettles and they had clamp or turn on lids. They had a dial gauge and they had a vent pipe in some form of a, a pet cock or covered with a counterweight and they had a weird like safety thing. Most of the modern pressure canners are more lightweight. They are thin walled. Most have turn on lids that have gaskets, although you do have the all American that still has no gasket with the clamp. Um, modern pressure canners have removable racks. They have automatic vent locks and cover locks, and they have a steam vent for safety purposes. So when you go looking for a pressure canner to purchase, you want to buy a canner that has the Underwriters Laboratory or UL approval because it means they've been tested and it's assuring your safety. Pressure canners today either have a dial gauge, which indicates the pressure, or a weighted gauge, and that indicates and regulates the pressure. So the weighted gauge ones are designed to shake or jiggle, you know, several times every minute, or they keep rocking gently back and forth when they are maintaining the correct pressure. You're gonna have directions included with the pressure canner that will tell you how to know when it, you know, how it, how it should, how it should rock to indicate the proper pressure is reached. Um, they have very specific instructions with this, right? I think this type of canner is the one that really makes people the most nervous because they're just not sure how they're going to figure that out, which is why we have dial gauge canners. They also usually have this weight, a counterweight or the pressure regulator for sealing off this open vent pipe to pressurize the canner. But then it also has a dial that is going to tell you exactly what the pressure is. So the weight that's on there is not actually a weighted gauge. It is actually sitting there as a safety mechanism. This is the type of canner that I have, and I actually found it at a barn sale. You know, pressure canners aren't cheap. Um, or at least you don't want to be using a cheap one. I think the least expensive one that, well, back then, the least expensive one that I could find was like 140 bucks. And we've all talked about how broke I was. <laughs> so I sure as heck wasn't spending 140 bucks on a pressure canner. We came across one at a barn sale, bought it, replaced the gasket, had it tested, and it has worked for me ever since. It is a Presto 23-quart canner, and I have never replaced it. It's the only pressure canner that I own, and it has continued to work flawlessly for me ever since. So this is a dial gauge canner, and so the pressure readings are registered on the dial, but it also has a counterweight, and the counterweight is designed to seal off the open vent pipe and pressurize the canner. If something were to happen and that pressure got too high in there, it would blow that weight off, allowing for all of that steam to vent out, preventing the canner from doing what you've seen and it's exploding, right? There are also now digital electric versions. Uh, the one that I've seen is also by Presto. And, you know, it says that it meets the USDA home canning guidelines for safely processing. But to my understanding, it is not UL approved and it has not been university tested. So having an electric version might make people feel safer than using one that's on the stove because it seems like it's more controlled. 
um, and it's more automated. And there is a very popular YouTuber who has tested it and she has it on her page and she uses it all the time. But there have been some debates as to, you know, whether or not the food that's coming out of it is as safe as it could be because there just haven't been enough extensive tests on it. You have to decide that for yourself. I will say that this digital electric version is about 320 some odd dollars. So it's about twice as much as like a regular Presto stovetop canner. Um, but again, you have to decide for yourself what you are more comfortable with. Do not confuse a pressure cooker, an electric pressure cooker with a pressure canner, okay? They are two different things. You cannot use your Instant Pot or any version thereof as a canner. There are some that will say that they can be used as a canner, but again, they are not UL listed. So yeah, that's a safety issue. Um, old school stovetop canners, pressure canners, like the one that I own, can be used as a pressure cooker. But modern electric pressure cookers cannot be used as a canner. So just keep that in mind. The only additional equipment that you would need for pressure canning over water bath canning is the canner itself. Everything else from the jars and the rings to the funnel and the jar lifter and all the other gadgets are exactly the same. So to help you determine if pressure canning might be something that you might want to try, I will give you the basic run now. Now, this does not replace the need for following specific instructions like through the Ball Blue Book of Canning or the National Center for Home Preservation. This is just to give you an idea of what is involved so you can decide whether or not pressure canning is something that you want to attempt. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I've been using Elm Dirt's plant juice in my greenhouse and my raised beds all season long and I can tell you the results have been impressive. My plants have been more drought tolerant, which has been super important this year. They've resisted disease better, they've handled stress more readily, and I've even done side-by-side -side comparisons and can absolutely see the difference in the health of the plants. Elm Dirt is offering Just Grow Something Gardening friends a little something special to get you started in using their products. Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use the code JUSTGROW at checkout to get a free bottle of their bloom juice with any purchase. I promise you will be super happy with the results. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use code JUSTGROW at checkout for a free bottle of bloom juice with any purchase from Elm Dirt. Okay, so here's the basic procedure for pressure canning. You're gonna put about two to three inches of water in the bottom of your canner. It should be hot, but it shouldn't be boiling. Um, and this is specifically for when you're canning raw packed foods. It can be hot or gently boiling if you're doing hot packed foods. Again, this is going to be based on your, um, your canning recipe. But just make sure that you still have a few inches of water in the bottom when you are ready to load the canner. 
fill the jars according to your recipe. This is basically going to be done the exact same way we did for the boiling water bath method that we talked about last week, allowing for proper headspace, removing the bubbles, wiping the jar rims and putting on the lids. All of those things are going to be the same. And then you're going to set the jars of food on the rack that is in the canner. Again, so that this time we're not worried about the evaporation from the bubbles. We want the steam to flow around each jar. So you want to make sure that they're not crammed up next to each other and touching. Fasten the canner lid, and then the steam is going to start to escape through the vent. You want to make sure that there isn't anything coming out the sides. If there's a bunch of steam coming out the side, it's either not closed up properly or you have a gasket that needs to be replaced. So you just want to be allowing the steam to be venting through the top. You turn the heat on high and you watch until the steam starts to escape from the vent. You let the steam escape steadily through this vent for 10 minutes. Now, I never really understood this step when I first started canning, and I'm glad that I just simply followed the directions because the step is necessary for all pressure canners because you're trying to remove any air that is in the canner that could otherwise lower the temperature. And if the temperature is lowered in the inside, it's going to result in under-processing. So do not skip this step. So once the steam has escaped steadily, for 10 minutes, then you're going to close the vent. Now, this is going to depend on the type of canner you have. It's either going to be a weight or a valve or a screw. Follow your manufacturer's instructions. For a dial gauge canner, this is the type that I have. You let the pressure rise as fast as you can to that eight pounds of pressure. And then you're going to turn your burner down just slightly and let the pressure continue to rise more slowly to the correct pressure based on your recipe. Usually this is around 11 to 15 pounds of pressure. If the burner were left on high, once the pressure reached where you wanted it to be, it's going to be more difficult to regulate it and you might blow right past that, that pressure that you want it to be at. So turn it down once you get to about eight pounds and let it build up slowly. Now, if you have a weighted gauge canner, then you're going to let that canner heat again very quickly at first and then adjust the heat down slightly until the weight begins to rock. This is that jiggling I was talking about. It's going to rock back and forth a couple of times every minute, depending on the type of camera you have. Again, always read your canner instructions. Do you see a theme here? <laughs> we are following the instructions. So when your canner gets to the proper pressure, you know, based on the dial gauge or the weighted gauge, you start counting the processing time at that point. So in water bath canning, we don't start counting the processing time until the water actually comes to a full rolling boil. For pressure canning, we don't start counting the processing time until the canner reaches the proper level of pressure. And then you want to just adjust the heat under the canner to maintain a steady pressure that is right at or slightly above the correct pressure for your recipe. If the pressure gets too high, turn it down just a little bit under the canner. Don't do huge swings of your heat, just a little bit at a time. Do not ever lower the pressure by opening the vent or lifting the weight. You want to adjust it by adjusting your heat. If you lose pressure at any time, that can result in under-processing or unsafe food. So if at any time during this process, the pressure goes down below the recommended amount, you have to bring the canner back up to pressure and begin the timing process all over again from the very beginning using the total original processing time. This is why people think that pressure canning is so difficult because it does take a little bit of 
attention. We have to be paying attention to what the canner is doing. Once you get the hang of it and you can hear the sound of it and you can see, you get more comfortable with it, it gets much easier. But the first few times, yeah, you might be a little bit nervous and it might stress you out a little bit. It's okay. It's a new process for you. It's not complicated. You just have to pay attention to what's going on. So when the processing is completed, then you basically shut the heat off and you let the pressure in the canner drop to zero on its own. You're not going to open up the vent. You're not going to run it into, you know, under, under cold water to try to cool it off. It's going to take about, you know, 30 to 45 minutes if you have a standard kind of heavier canner um, or even close to an hour if you have like a really big one like mine, which is 22 quarts. Um, the newer, like thinner canners tend to depressurize a little bit more quickly from what I understand, but you just, you don't want to rush the cooling. You don't want to lift the weight or open the vent. This can actually cause your food to spoil. Don't force the cooling, just let it do its thing. Okay. Once the pressure in the canner has dropped to zero, unfasten the lid and then tilt the far side up. So the steam escapes away from you. You do not want to give yourself a facial at this point. Do not leave the jars in the closed canner to cool. This can also cause your food to spoil. We're going to use a jar lifter to carefully remove those jars from the canner. Remember our handy dandy jar lifter? Yes. Place the hot jars on a cooling rack or onto dry towels on the counter. Leave at least an inch of space between the jars so they can effectively cool. Do not touch the lids, do not do anything. Let them cool for at least 12 hours. You can probably leave it up to 24 hours and then check that all the lids have properly sealed. If a jar has not sealed, once again, those contents can be reprocessed according to the recipe directions. Otherwise, just throw it into the refrigerator and eat it immediately. So I know it might seem a little overwhelming. It really is not difficult. It's just about following the directions and paying attention to what's going on in your kitchen. So if you have small children who are likely to be underfoot or needing your attention every 10 minutes, you might not want to be pressure canning at that moment. That's really the only thing to remember. Follow the directions and it'll all work out. And then one more side note about this, and that's about electric stovetops versus gas ranges. If you cook on an electric stove, especially one with a glass top, you're going to need to be careful about the type of canner you choose. You want to look for a lighter weight one that won't crack your stovetop and verify that the manufacturer recommends using it on a glass top stove. Also, Electric stoves are difficult sometimes to control the temperature because they constantly heat up and cool down in cycles. It's not to say that it can't be done, but it may require more attention from you. Now, if that's not something that you want to mess with, don't give up. You can get standalone propane single burners, sort of like those single burner camp stoves that you can use to keep a steady temperature for pressure canning. And honestly, I mean, you can use one of these for your water bath canning too, you know, even if you have a gas stove. It keeps the canning off of the stovetop so you can still use the stove to cook or do whatever. Or you can even move the burner outside and do your canning on the porch or the patio where it's not heating up the whole kitchen. My dream would be to have an outdoor kitchen where I could have all my stuff set up and ready to go whenever I have the extra time and some extra veggies. And I could just go outside and do it without making a mess of my kitchen or heating up the house. But, uh, you know, one step at a time. We've talked through freezing, water bath canning, and now pressure canning. So what is next on our food preservation journey? 
Next week, we'll take a step back a little bit and we'll talk about some other easy ways to preserve in dehydrating and basic cold storage. Plus, we'll tackle fermenting as a storage option. Now, this is different than making pickles with vinegar, and you'll hear a lot of people talking about the gut health benefits of fermenting our garden veggies. But we'll talk about how to safely store fermented foods and how long they're good for. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and maybe preserving it. And we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. Either your gauge gets to the proper, the proper, um, wow, I just had a brain fart. We don't start counting the time until the pressure hits the proper pressure point. Until the pressure hits the proper pressure point. That doesn't make any sense. And then just leave the jars. Um, mm, that's not, no, you don't want to leave the jars. That's what you don't want to do. Good grief. Out of the canner and then place them on a cooling rack or in towels. In towels? No. Put them onto either a cooling rack or into some dry, into. Why do I keep saying into? Onto. Jeez. If you get lots of great information from this podcast and would like to support it monetarily, you can do that by becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month over on Patreon. I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting this and every episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. And if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething. The link is in the show notes.